Today we want to finish our series on the images of the church. We've entitled this one, Images of the Church, Who We Are, What We Do, and Where We're Going. And that where we're going part is the one for today. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 19, uh, mostly as a starting point. Um, how can I say? The, some of the other images we've looked at are pretty, pretty widely used. Um, the body image is one that's quite common in the New Testament, and we went over that. And family, family is everywhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The idea of the temple was rooted in the Old Testament and is used in many places in the New Testament. But this idea of heavenly citizenship, being a citizen of heaven, is only explicitly mentioned in two spots in the New Testament. One of those is in Ephesians 2. The word for citizen is used twice, verse 12 and verse 19. And the other use is in Philippians 3 that we had um, read for us in our scripture today from Philippians 3, verse 20. So while the word citizen is not one that is very common in the New Testament, it can be understood as a theme, and that's the goal that I have for today, is for us to be able to see this theme of citizenship. Not so much the word, because as I said, the word isn't there very much, but truth be told, thousands of years ago when I was in seminary, I had to write a paper. And the paper I had to write was the teacher said, I want you to pick something that is minor, in Paul's theology, something that he doesn't talk about very much. Pick that thing and then try to see all that Paul says through the glasses of that little tiny thing. And so as a student, I picked this idea of heavenly citizenship. It's only mentioned in two places. And yet, when you put the citizenship glasses on, you begin to see the truth of God's word in a very exciting way. So that's what we want to do today, is look at this idea of the church as heavenly citizens. We're going to start with Ephesians chapter 2, but then we're going to move around the New Testament to see how this idea flavors and characterizes a lot of what the Bible is all about. All right, so before we do that, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the writer, you are the living word, and that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the word for us. You've left your Holy Spirit to understand your word. And so we thank you that as we open your word today, you are here with us. I pray that as we look at your word and this idea of citizenship, that we would be drawn once again to give you glory to recognize all the benefits that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. I pray that our hearts would be open to your Holy Spirit's prompting as we look at your word and 
You speak to us. I pray that our hearts would be open to you and that you would move in a way that pleases you and that we would respond in obedience to you. Cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the church is composed of heavenly citizens. Now, you may not be sports fans, but most people who even aren't sports fans care about something that's coming up this week. Do you know what I'm talking about? This Friday, Olympics start in Beijing. I always feel proud as a Beijinger because Beijing is the only city to ever host both the summer games and the winter games. Nobody else has ever done that. That's a special privilege for them. But I like watching the Olympics because to be brutally frank, when the Olympics started, whatever it was, 1896 or whatever it was, the guy who started it had this big dream that it would be this wonderful exaltation of sport. It would break down barriers and people wouldn't uh, be drawn apart by political divisions and all of that. That's baloney. That's rubbish. That's exactly the opposite of what has happened with Olympics. When I was a boy, as I say, thousands of years ago, it, the Olympics was a time for East and West to, to fight each other. You had the Soviet Union, the evil Soviet Union, and the good Western world, democratic, freedom-loving people. And if we won the gold medal, that meant our political system was better than your political system. Now, Soviet Union is gone and all of that, but... Even today, when you watch the Olympics, whether it's Summer Olympics or Winter Olympics, people want to represent their country. People love to represent their country. My favorite hockey team, sorry Leaf fans, is the Boston Bruins. And Brad Marchand was desperate. He wanted to be in the Olympics. He threatened when they said the NHL was not going to be in the Olympics, he threatened to retire so that he could go to the Olympics and then unretire and come back and play for the Boston Bruins when they said NHL players wouldn't go. People want to represent their country. And if you watch Olympics on TV, sometimes you'll see, for example, when Canada beats the United States in hockey. Sorry, Nick. But we do. That's because we're the best. But when we beat the United States in hockey, what happens at the end? They stand on the ice, they get their gold medals, they raise the flags of the three countries, and the highest flag is the winning gold medal country, Canada, and they play the Canadian national anthem, right? And if you look at the players' faces, a lot of times you'll see them standing there together, arm in arm, singing at the top of their lungs, some of them crying with emotion because... They feel so good that they've represented their country. They are proud citizens of their country. Citizenship is something important. I have a Canadian passport. That is important. I need it when I travel around the world. But I have a citizenship that is much, much, much more important. And that's what we want to talk about today. The church is composed of heavenly citizens. 
To understand this, we need to look a little bit of the social context that Paul is writing Ephesians chapter 2. What does it mean in the first century to be a citizen? Paul was a dual citizen himself. He was a Roman citizen, and he was also a Jewish citizen. So if you were a Roman citizen in the first century, how did you get to become a Roman citizen? There were different ways, three common ways to become a citizen. You could be born either in Rome itself, or you could be born in a city like Paul was that was designated as a place where if you were born there, you were a citizen. Paul was born in Tarsus. It was a colony of Rome. Therefore, if you are born there, you are a citizen. You could also be a citizen um, if you were a slave to Roman citizens and they granted you your freedom. Part of granting you freedom was you became a Roman citizen. You could also be granted citizenship of Rome for doing some service to the empire, either serving in the army or serving in the Senate or some other special thing that you may have done, and they, as an honor, would grant you citizenship. You say, big deal. What does that mean? What do you get for being a citizen? Well, there were several things. Number one, if you lived in the city of Rome, you could vote. So they had voting privileges even then. If you were a Roman citizen, it was against the law for you to be crucified. You could not experience any kind of degrading kind of punishment. If you were a Roman citizen, you could appeal to Caesar. And we see in the book of Acts, Paul does exactly that. Gets a free ride all the way to Rome just by appealing to Caesar so that he can present his case before the emperor. What kind of duties were involved in being a Roman citizen? Not very much, really. The only thing that you might be asked to do is serve in the military, but that was not even very common at all. So you could become a citizen and you'd get these benefits and you'd have these responsibilities. Now, if you wanted to be Paul's other identity, Jewish, there were two ways that you could become a Jew. Obviously, you could be born Jewish, but there are others who through various reasons, decided that they wanted to become Jews, they could do that, and the process was called proselytization. That's a fancy word that just means joining the Jews. How did you join the Jews? Well, if you were a man, you had to be circumcised. There was a form of baptism that you had to do, and you would have to offer a sacrifice in the temple. And once you had done that, you were Jewish. So what were the advantages and responsibilities of being a Jew? Now, for Jews in the first century, they were very proud of their Jewish heritage. They were under the Roman Empire, but they considered themselves the covenant people of God. So all of the, the both the responsibilities and the privileges were tied up in being the covenant people of God. So God is has given us the law. God is on our side. He is the one true God. All of these are the benefits, and then the responsibilities are obey the law, follow the law, do what the law says. The other aspect of Jewish citizenship was corporate solidarity. That sounds ominous. Corporate solidarity. 
What I mean by that phrase is two things. Number one, if you are a member of Israel, there is a deep bond, a deep connection, so that when you look in the Old Testament, the king and the people sometimes are interchangeable in the Psalms. There is a oneness to them. So when the king sins, the nation is punished. When the nation sins, the king is punished. There is a solidarity. There is a deep connection there. But the other part of solidarity is there is a lifestyle. There is a culture. There is a way of living that identifies you as Jewish. And so Israel, unlike Romans, Roman citizens could live anywhere in the empire. There wasn't any sort of cultural identity to it. But to be a Jew meant that you identified with the law, you identified with a culture, you identified with a certain experience. So that's the background to what we want to talk about today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 19. We're going to look at these verses in three sections, all revolving around Jesus. The first part, verse 11 and 12, talks about our separation from Christ. Verses 13 to 16 talks about our solidarity in Christ. And then verses 17 to 19 talk about our uh, security through Christ. So let's look at that first part, verses 11 and 12, separation from Christ. Um, Kenzie mentioned the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 earlier in our worship time, that we were far away from God, but because of God's love and mercy, he has made us alive in Christ. This is continuing on from that same section, starting at verse 11. This is what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, quote, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning Jews, like, ew, disgusting Gentiles, ugh, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's already trying to say, this is a human thing, don't worry about that. Remember, though, what your status was. Remember how you were separated. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the, and this word here, commonwealth, is the same word that is translated in verse 19 as citizen. It's the same word in Greek, exactly the same word. You were alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That sounds pretty bad. In other words, what Paul is saying is, without Jesus, separated from Jesus, we are Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. It doesn't get much worse than that. Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. That's what we were. We had no home. We were lost. That's really what the word lost means. Without Christ, without a home, without a friend, without a hope, without God. 
But then, when we move on to verses 13 to 16, there's a change. There's a change that takes place that gives you a new passport. This is what it says. But now, not before, but now, in Christ Jesus, being a member of God's family, in Christ Jesus, you who were far, once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Jesus did on the cross was gave us Christ, gave us a state, gave us a friend, gave us hope, gave us God. For he himself is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you remember last week when I showed you the two pictures of the temple, there was the small one was Solomon's temple and then there was the bigger one was Herod's temple with the big walls all around it. Remember that? If you were not here, you won't remember. But anyway, there are big walls around Herod's temple. You know why the big walls were there? To keep the filthy, disgusting Gentiles out. And if you read in the book of Acts, there's that section where there's a big riot in Jerusalem. That's when Paul gets arrested. Why does he get arrested? Because the rumor goes out that he brought Gentiles into the temple. And that is not allowed. There are actually signs in the Rockefeller Museum in the United States. They actually have the original stone that sat above the temple, or sat across the gate, top of the gate in the temple that separated Gentiles from Jews. And across the top of that gate, it says, death to any Gentile who enters beyond this point. That's how much friendship there was between Jews and Gentiles. Jews didn't have Gentiles in their home. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. Jews didn't talk to Gentiles. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, they're like, why are you talking to her? She's not Jewish. Jews took this idea of being separate all the way, and they didn't want anything to do with Gentiles. They hated each other. But now, Paul says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the wall of the temple that divided us and made us hostile toward each other. Jesus has created in himself, by his death on the cross, something new. He has given us peace. We are united. We are in solidarity. He goes on to say in verse 15, how did Jesus do this? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might make everybody Jewish. No. That's not what it says. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. 
so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, if you're a Christian, that is your passport. That is where you belong. And the people who are with you in the church who love Jesus, they are your fellow citizens. They are with you and you are with them. When they are serving, just like when we watch the Olympics, I have never met any of those Olympic athletes and yet I cheer for them. And when they win, I feel like I won. We are fellow citizens. When there is a victory in the church, we all win. We all cheer each other on. That's what we should be doing. We are fellow citizens breaking down the hostility because what we are is something new. What we were before, my Canadian citizenship doesn't matter. What matters is I'm part of something new. And that's what he finishes with in verses 17 to 19. The security that comes through Christ. Being in Christ gives you security through Christ. Here's what he says in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is almost word for word from Isaiah 57 when there's a prophecy about what the Messiah will do. Verse 18. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you are in Jesus, you have access by the Spirit, to the Father, because of what Jesus has done for you. And we are one. We are fellow citizens. So then, what does it mean to be a citizen? Whenever you talk about citizenship, what does it mean? Well, citizens typically have four things. They have a home, they have some sort of solidarity, some sort of cultural connection. They have privileges, but they also have responsibilities. So if Jesus is what makes us citizens, let's look at Jesus himself first of all. Jesus is the ultimate citizen of heaven. When we think about the idea of home, in his pre-existence and in his glorification after dying on the cross and being raised again. And Philippians 2, 5-11 says, He has been exalted and given a name that is above every name. 
Jesus' home is heaven. He is the ultimate citizen of heaven. Jesus has solidarity with us. He is in solidarity with all believers through their union with him. We are in Christ. You can't have any greater solidarity than that. Being a follower of Jesus means you are in Christ. And all the images we've looked at before that emphasize our connection with each other also emphasize our connection to Jesus. If I am part of Jesus' body, who is the head? Jesus. If I am part of Jesus' family, who is my big brother? Jesus. If I am being built into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, who is the chief cornerstone of that temple? It is Jesus. If I am a heavenly citizen, why am I a heavenly citizen? It's because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Jesus is the most important link to all of these images. And that's why he is the ultimate citizen of heaven. What are his privileges as a citizen of heaven? Because of his obedient life and sacrificial death on the cross, following his resurrection, he has been eternally exalted over the universe and he has been given headship in the church. His responsibilities have included his work on the cross and that is finished, but even now he has work to do. He is the chief cornerstone of the church. He has been given the rule of the universe. Even as a citizen of heaven, he continues to have responsibilities. So if Jesus, the ultimate citizen of heaven, has all of these things, and I am deeply connected to him because of Jesus' work on the cross, and I am deeply connected to you because you are a follower of Jesus, and together we are in Christ. What does it mean for me to be a citizen of heaven? Well, we'll go through these four points again. A home. Where is my home? Philippians 3, 20 and 21 was read during our scripture reading, but I'll read verse 20 and 21 again to you. But our citizenship, the same word, commonwealth, fellow citizens, citizenship, this, these are the only three times this word is mentioned in the New Testament. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I have a home. You have a home. One of the great things about living overseas living in a country where you weren't born, is you begin to figure out what home really means. 
as many of you know, we lived in China for 20, 20 and a half, 21 years, something like that, a long time. Many wonderful things about living in China. Some not so wonderful things about living in China. Wonderful things about living in Canada. Some not so wonderful things about living in Canada. But Canada is not my home. China is not my home. Heaven is my home. That's got to affect the way I think about everything. When we lived in China, we never bought nice furniture. Why not? Because we knew we weren't going to be there for a long time. So we didn't buy nice stuff. We bought okay stuff. It wasn't terrible. But we didn't buy the nicest stuff because we didn't want to invest in something that was temporary. Our thoughts were towards what is going to last, what is most important. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior who will give us our glorified body. That is our home. Now you say, well, that's nice for Christians. What about the Old Testament? Did they care about that? Well, the writer of Hebrews talks about that. He says this in chapter 11, the chapter about by faith this one did this, by faith that one did that. Right in the middle of all of that, talking about Abraham and Moses and all these people, he says this, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read 13 to 16, and then I'm going to jump all the way down to the end of the chapter because these ideas are linked. In verses 13 to 16, he said, These, meaning all these faithful people in the Old Testament, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And when you read Revelation 21, what is that city? It is the new Jerusalem. It's not here on earth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they weren't looking to a place in the, next to the Mediterranean Sea to be their final home. By faith, they were looking for a heavenly home. And then, this, this verse always excites me, verses 39 and 40, when he gets to the end talking about all these faithful people, he says this, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, he says it in a negative way, but what he's really saying is, 
They are with us and we are with them. They didn't get it yet because God was waiting to give it to us too. The heavenly home that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Rahab and all of these people were longing to see is the same home that they will share with us. And God was waiting for Christ to come and make it possible so that together we could share in that heavenly home that God has prepared for us. Solidarity. If I'm a Christian, what does that mean in terms of the way I think and the way I live? Colossians 3, 1 to 4 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, then also you will appear with him in glory. Matthew 6 says something similar. Verse 20, 21. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Solidarity. Thinking about what lasts. What is important. Where should I set my mind on the problems of this world or on what pleases God? Clearly, you know the answer. What are the privileges of being a heavenly citizen? If you, if you look at the beginning of a lot of letters, Paul's letters, even Peter's letters to the churches, they always start with a blessing. And I'm just going to point out two. These are the privileges of being a heavenly citizen. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, we don't have time to read it all, but from verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence. And he begins to list all of the benefits we have been elect before the foundation of the world. We have an inheritance that is waiting for us. We have connection with the Father. We have connection with the Son. And he lists blessing after blessing after blessing that we have. 1 Peter 1 similarly says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our citizenship is in heaven, and our inheritance is waiting for us there. Lastly, what are our responsibilities. If I'm a heavenly citizen, I get privileges, I have a home, I have solidarity, but I also have responsibilities. First responsibility I want to highlight 
also comes from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. Part of being a heavenly citizen requires us to be a warrior. Paul puts it this way. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. One of the responsibilities of being a heavenly citizen is that there is a heavenly battle ongoing. And we are required to be heavenly citizens who participate in that battle, serving our king to see that righteousness and justice is put forth. Now notice what he says there, that, that our battle isn't against people. Our battle is, against, is a spiritual warfare battle. What is our relationship to outsiders? I used the phrase last week, Lao Wei. What is our relationship to Lao Wei? Outsiders. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20 tells us we are to be ambassadors. Verses 18 and 20 of 2 Corinthians 5 says this. God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus came and preached peace to those who are far away and those who are near. If we are in solidarity with Jesus, what is our job? To preach peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That is our responsibility, to be an ambassador. So what is the direct application to us here at Arendelle Bible Chapel? We are heavenly citizens. If we have come to know Christ, and we are in that solidarity with Christ. What is our application? Once again, we need Jesus. I put this in the application every week because it's true. We need Jesus. He is the source of our heavenly citizenship and our solidarity. So I want to ask you a question today, whether you're here in the audience or you're watching online. Have you taken your oath of citizenship? Have you given your life to Jesus? Are you yet still not a citizen of heaven? Jesus died on the cross to preach peace to you. Come to him today and become a citizen of heaven. If you are a citizen of heaven, look at what this means to us. We have a heavenly home. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you thought about Jesus' return? When was the last time you thought about Jesus is coming back? King James, when, when it translates 
uh, Philippians 3, verse 20. It doesn't just say we wait for Jesus from heaven. It says we eagerly await. How eager are we for Jesus to take us home? When was the last time you thought about that? If that's up in my frontal lobe, then that's going to affect how I think and how I act. Do you experience unhomeliness? This is a word that comes from from literature where you don't feel like you belong where you are. Part of being a Christian in this world, you should experience unhomeliness. You should feel uncomfortable because this is not where you belong. Your home is in heaven. Do you ever experience unhomeliness? Are you comfortable in this world? In terms of solidarity, how do we respond to the deep connection between us as believers? We're all on the same team. We're all cheering for each other. We all want to see that flag raised. We all want to sing that national anthem for each other together because we are citizens together of heaven. Are our values and our decisions shaped by our eternal home? Do we make decisions because of it makes the most economic sense or it brings us the most comfort or because it has the most eternal value? In terms of privileges, do we thank God for all the benefits we have in Christ? We can get weighed down. COVID is a depressing time. But if we think about all that God has done for us, it can give us a boost. It can give us encouragement to know what Jesus has already done for us. And in our responsibilities, finally, are we in the battle or are are we on R&R? R&R. You may not know that phrase. That's a good old wartime phrase. Rest and relaxation. Are we fighting evil in our own lives, in the world, or are we in relaxed mode? And finally, do I take my role as an ambassador for Christ into my home and family? Do I take my responsibility as an ambassador into my workplace, amongst my friends, at my school, in the world? Am I preaching peace to those who are far? Am I preaching peace to those who are near because they need a savior? So while we're eagerly awaiting that savior who's coming to give us a new glorious body, Let's be the ambassadors that Jesus calls us to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, was willing to die on the cross for our sins, that in preaching peace, he broke down that hostility and we could be one new citizenry, one new people of God. We pray that in our lives, we would rejoice in all that you have done, that we would fulfill those responsibilities that you have given to us in this world, and that we would be people who are longing to see Jesus return so that we can be together with him forever. Help us to be 
those citizens you want to be today and this week for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.